like to pray first. Lord, um, be with us in this sermon. May my, my preparations be, um, well, uh, may they land the plane into the minds and hearts of those who are here. And uh, even if some parts are confusing about it, Lord, may, may we be the kind of people who want to dig deeper and understand better your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke 2, 1 through 7 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. You may be seated. So I've got um, four points that I hope to make in this uh, sermon, and they all have to do with the idea of this son who's come, Mary's son. And they aren't necessarily going to build on one another, but don't be surprised if they don't a little. The first point is this, the promise of a son given must be understood both biblically, using biblical language, not American language, and it's also to be understood historically. It is historical in his presentation to us in the scripture, this promised son, because it grew over time. The promise grew over time. So you should think of the promise of a son sort of as a developing concept or doctrine, the doctrine of the son. More like, more like this, okay? God is going to paint a masterpiece. He's going to put it on canvas and the colors will take shape over time and he'll paint over some areas again and again until finally he hangs it on the wall. When we think of the promise of the Son, that's how we are to understand it, that all along the things that happened, the promises that were made, the people that were involved somehow fulfilled the final picture. We should not think of biblical evidence, biblical prophecies and promises like some kind of jigsaw puzzle where all the pieces are spread apart and we're just looking for the right one to put in to the 
picture to make it whole. I think that is wrongheaded and too often the way we treat Scripture when it comes to the Son of God. So it's biblical and it's a historical promise. All right? I'm going to elaborate a little bit on what that looked like in the Bible. So from the start, God determined to give the world a son. Moses recounted, who wrote Genesis, that God said to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So according to that promise, as interpreted by Bible scholars throughout history, the offspring of the woman, a son, would be bruised by the serpent, Satan, mankind's enemy, but that that same son would strike a blow to Satan's head. Indeed, that has happened. But right at the start, in the garden, this religious doctrine began. It was God's promise to humanity. Now, these colors and strokes and markings applied to the picture that God was going to someday hang on the wall. At first, you had Eve, and she'd find partial fulfillment of this promise immediately when she birthed a son named Cain. Then Abel, later Seth. These are fulfillments to the promise of a son who would deliver. Look at this. I've got a son. God has given me a son. Hmm. Eve eventually, or actually says of, of Seth, quote, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him, end quote. So it's happening. We've got to see this. It's happening. God's word is coming to pass. We just had a son. We had three sons and more. The woman has had male offspring. History has taken its first step down the corridor of things being fixed. Now, Eve had many sons, and her sons married to other women who had sons, and people populated the ancient world all the while this promise remained. And so hope came with every male child born. Could this be the one? Would mankind be restored and have victory? Overcome sin? Find relief from suffering? Be rescued from destruction and destroy the devil? Is this the one? Though each male child born affected history, 
Make no mistake about that, none seemed to be able to save us. Nevertheless, God continued by giving us Noah and Shem and Arphaxed and Canaan and so on down to Abraham. And God calls him from his land to come out and promises to make Abram a blessing to all nations, which is an important aspect added to this doctrine of the promised son. You see, all these sons that were born and lived and sinned was not God failing to keep his promise. God was keeping his promise. They were not the ones ultimately to fulfill it. God gives Abraham a son through the woman named Sarah. They got Isaac. And to Isaac is given Jacob through the woman Rebekah. And to Jacob is born Judah through the woman Leah. And so on down to King David. And God promises David a son to sit on his throne forever, a forever throne. Another important addition to the developing concept. So God gave details to the patriarchs. He also added details through the prophets. Each added detail to the growing doctrine of promise. And the people of Israel, they had a name for it, Messianic Doctrine. And they referred to the Son as the coming Messiah. Here's something King David was shown. After he'd been writing about the great king in Psalm 2, sitting on his throne and how he would sit on the throne, David then recorded a conversation that that took place between God and the king. The Lord said to me, this is the conversation, this is the king speaking, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Not only is this son's kingdom a forever, ever kingdom, but it expands everywhere. text I read earlier in the service was what, was what God showed one of his prophets, Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We know enough to celebrate that this is reality now. I'm concluding this first section 
with these words, okay? 19th century theologian, biblical scholar, Willis Judson Beecher was his name. Fantastic in how he's understood and brought this to bear, this idea to bear, this promise, this developing promise, this developing piece of artwork that matters. He tells us the word son began to be used as a messianic term. Sometimes it referred to Israel or at other times the existing representatives representative of the house of David. And both began to be thought of as the fulfilling of the eternal promise. There was a sense that the Son will always exist from back in the garden onward. Though in the Bible he is explicitly said to be Israel or is expressly identified with some member of the house of David, he is also in certain passages, example Psalm 2, Isaiah 9, declared to be a superhumanly exalted person. And so there I think what Beecher is saying is what I started saying earlier. There is a sense, a sense in which the colors added to the painting can be said to be part of the painting. That if one was to look over the shoulder of the painter, he might comment, hmm, the Messiah is wonderful. When will you show it to the world? If that was the case earlier in history, before Jesus came. When will you show this painting to the world? Nevertheless, prior to Jesus, the portrait is not yet ready to be hung on the wall. For much work needs to go into it yet. But that work is complete. The Son has come. Not until God the Son came... As offspring of a woman, would it be time to hang that picture? He came from eternity. He is the exalted person, the perfect seed, because you see, he had come from above. The Son of Man is also the Son of God. Which brings me to my second point. There is an eternal reality about the Son. You see, the people of of earth were watching for a son born of woman like them, an earthly son of man, one with feet of clay. All the while, the Son of God, he determined to enter mankind's history to do his Father's will. The Son of God is not bound by time or place. He is not hindered by things. Rather, he holds all things together as his creation, Colossians 1.17. The Son of God also knows all things from the end to the beginning. But more than these, the Son of God loves his Father 
and exists to do what the Father wants. Even as Christ walked in the flesh of man, he did never leave his eternal Father. He merely walked among his Father's things. And it's true what George MacDonald says, quote, he has never lost his childhood. The very essence of childhood being nearness to the Father and the outgoing of his creative love, end quote. So in heaven and upon the earth, the Son delights to do the will of his Father. There's no better thing. The Son delights to see all things as the Father has made them. He delights in the uses the Father will make of dark things too. Hear this. He delights in the uses the Father will make of dark things too. Extreme cold and heat bodily comfort and pain, life and death. For the Son loves and trusts His Father to know what is good. This is demonstrated even on the Mount of Olives when He prayed, Jesus prayed, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. So back it up. When the angel said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. When the angel said that, this means that heaven and earth have met. The Son of God has become the Son of Man. Third point. The Son's purpose is to do His Father's will. Hmm. Jesus teaches us people how it is we should live. It's what Adam and Eve knew for a moment. They understood without sin their purpose was to love God and enjoy Him. All things belong to the Father, including humanity. So it is reasonable to conclude that we exist for His purposes and not our own. It's reasonable to conclude that. It's difficult to accept that. And so Jesus is found in the temple at 12 years old. His parents thought he'd gone lost. They were afraid for him, but Jesus was not afraid for he was about his father's business. It says in Luke 2, 46 and 47, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Mary and Joseph did not understand 
their faith was weak. Bad things could happen. To them, the world was filled with horrors and accidents, storms, starvation, sickness, wild animals, evil men, and imposters. But to Jesus, these these dark things also belonged to his Father. And Jesus knew, my Father loves me and knows what is best for me. So Jesus could not merely, he could not merely fish in water, but he could walk on it when necessary. He could multiply fishes and loaves where appropriate by lifting his eyes heavenward. So finding him in the temple, 12-year-old Jesus said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Listen, this is what the Son is always after in heaven and on earth. He desires his Father's will be done. In John 5.19, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, 28 and 29. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Part four, our purpose is to do the Father's will. This is how we are to be. It's our high privilege to be children of the Heavenly Father. We are to love Him and keep His commands. Our life's purpose is to do the will of the Father, period. You don't exist for another purpose. And it's only those who fight to find their own purpose that life is a ruin. Jesus demonstrated what the right life was like. And I tell you, congregant, in his conclusion, that conclusion alone, you will find your peace. You will not find your peace any other way than to submit yourself to the Father's will. It does not matter if the things of this world go on attack, go on attack against you and tear at you, or if, if it is the smoother path down which you get to walk. Whatever your lot, you are to be about your Father's business and not your own. This equals peace, friend.
Not my will, but his. And do you know what? Those teachers who sat in the temple, astonished by a 12-year-old boy, those same men were likely among some of those who wanted to kill him when he was 33. The son was their solution, and yet they treated him like their problem. Why? Because God was not their father. The devil was. At least this was Jesus' conclusion. Maybe not about every particular man there in that setting, but in the religious leaders as a whole. John 8, 42 and 40 through 44, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Here is a sign of whether God is your father. Jesus captures it in a sentence or two later. He says, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Of course, the Jewish leaders could could physically hear Scripture. So when it says, whoever is of God hears the words of God, Jesus is getting at a little deeper point there. They could hear Scripture. But they did not hear it. It did not resonate with them. You know? It did not spur them on to obedience. It mostly got in their way. They wanted to keep things on the surface. Give me a few things to do, some tips for living for God, but keep out of my heart. No, I don't think they would have said, the devil's my father, leave me alone. But that was Jesus' conclusion. Is it better for you? Ask yourself and include God in your little internal conversation. None of the rest of us need to even hear about this. Ask yourself, when I hear your scripture, Lord, do I want to trust and obey? Or do I want to find a way to avoid it, to discard it, to move on? Are you my goal? To please you even though I suffer for it? If the Father's will is not what you desire first, then at the very least, you are not choosing to follow in in the footsteps of your eldest brother, Jesus. And you need to change that. We need to change that. 
because life cannot fulfill you. I'll tell you, if this goes out on dead ears, it's your own doing. Life cannot fulfill you apart from him, no matter what worldly possessions you've gained. Look, we can choose to live as children of God or children of the devil. We all start over there, apart from him. But because of the work of the promised son, we've been offered the privilege of adoption into his family and God with us forever. Only we must learn to be about our father's business just like Jesus. It was Adam's original purpose and his heart's desire, Eve's too, at first. It was also the second Adam's purpose, and it must be ours. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. You have accomplished all. And now you reign at the right hand of, the, of your Father and you put enemies under your feet. And we are so glad to bow the knee before you. Holy Spirit, keep working in us as you have begun the work of new life. Cause us to, to run to do the Father's will. Even though this world is filled with dark things, might we know that you are in charge and in control of these two. In Jesus' name we pray.